We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Caddyshack on July 25th, 1980. It was written by Brian Doyle Murray, Harold Ramis, Douglas Kenny, directed by Harold Ramis, and released by Warner Brothers. The story of the film was inspired by Brian Doyle Murray's childhood experiences as a caddy at the Indian Hill Club in Winnetka, Illinois. Danny's family is based on Brian Doyle's with eight siblings, two of which make appearances in the film. I thought it was weird that there were so many siblings. I yeah. Mean, mm-hmm. I, it doesn't feel like it comes into play at all, aside from the fact that maybe they're just too poor to I think it's to just college. to show that they're a poor Irish family, that's all. Okay. Brothers Bill and John, as well as director Harold Ramis, had also worked as caddies as teenagers. The film was shot over 11 weeks, temporarily delayed by Hurricane David. The set was rather infamously rife with cocaine use. Where was it shot? I would imagine that it was not shot in an area like Winnetka, Illinois, if a hurricane was a problem. Right, no. I think it was shot in Florida, but I don't know where in Florida. Well... My research on Hurricane David shows that it came up through the Caribbean, hit Florida, and then went up even through uh, the entire 13 colonies. Can you tell us where it's at now? (laughs) Caddyshack was filmed at Rolling Hills in Davie, Florida. Okay. Davie. (laughs) Hit by David in Davie? Oh, goodness. I don't know, Davie. Harold Ramis intended to cast a live animal as the gopher, but animatronics and puppets won out. Ramus would later get his way in Groundhog Day. The first cut of the film came to about four and a half hours. Bill Murray's ball-mashing speech lasted a full half hour. What? Uh, Are you kidding? No. Two hours were cut from this pass, which demolished the original through line following Danny and Maggie's relationship. It was replaced with comedic relief gopher footage to make the film feel less like a bunch of unconnected vignettes. Harold Ramis was... <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah, no. it still felt like a bunch of unconnected vignettes. Yes, it did. Uh, Harold Ramis was notoriously disappointed with how the film turned out, but one complaint he had was that nobody besides Danny knew how to properly swing a golf club. Kenny Loggins' I'm Alright was composed for the film and reached the top 10 of the U.S. singles chart. Don Rickles was originally cast as the Al Cervic role that went to Rodney Dangerfield. I can see that. Yeah. I, I could I could actually see yeah. Don Rickles chewing his teeth on this. All right. Here's strike one for me. I think that would have been better. <laughs> Mickey Rourke was considered for the Danny Noonan role. What? No, thank you. What? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a that's uh, a no. I think yeah. he's a he's a good deal older. Yeah. And it's also a completely different person. Yeah. Uh Bill Murray was actually brought on late to replace an unnamed actor who could not act or recall his lines as the groundskeeper the character was originally intended to be a shell-shocked war veteran but ended up a combination of a character that murray had workshopped at second city and an impersonation of the actor that he replaced (laughs) 
uh, and also seemed mostly improv yes anyway, it was 100 percent improv so nothing rem- was written for him <laughs> remembering lines became became a moot point yeah they shot all of his stuff in six days and uh he was working without a script which i think is why <laughs> this is my least favorite bill murray performance ever yeah i'm actually not terribly fond of his character in yeah. this movie especially because it's super easy to impersonate and so people do it all the time and they think look i'm as funny as bill murray and it's like no no no, that's like his worst character Yeah, that's him not being funny (laughs) yeah this is the final film of sarah holcomb and ted knight it was followed by a sequel that is widely regarded as one of the worst sequels of all time oh man you put it on like after this one yeah i could not watch it it was rough yeah Jackie Mason just trying to be Rodney Dangerfield is very great. Uh, kind of. Uh, I feel like I feel like Randy Quaid is more like trying to be Rodney Dangerfield. Well, he's yeah, he's filling that role of the guy that yeah, know, throwing his money around. Um, although I do like Robert Stack and uh, the interaction between Robert Stack and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, uh, but Dan Aykroyd doing an impression of Bill Murray's character is frustrating too. Well, and 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 with a really high pitched voice for some reason. And those characters were in a deleted scene from Ghostbusters, like the Carl Spackler groundskeeper character. Really? Yeah. There's just a scene where they play dual roles, like they're they're supposed to just be hobos in Times Square. But I disagree on the other thing. I think that a good karate guy is always going to chop. A heavyweight boxer. No, no, no. You take any martial artist, black belt, I don't care how good he is, what degree, you put him in a ring with a power puncher like Chuck Wepner, Wepner would devastate him every time. Okay, I agree with that, but I think that Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Kowloon are going to be your three big terrible bargains this year. Run, run! Get out of the way! Interesting. It's it's not funny, and I see why it was taken out. It, um, well, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Dukes in Coming to America. Yes. Where Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy play themselves as the Dukes, but That's homeless right. out on the street. <laughs> yeah. The Dukes? From what? Uh, from Trading Places. We open with our second consecutive Orion logo. The Earthling wasn't originally an Orion picture, but it currently has the logo in front of it on Amazon Prime. And it starts with an MGM and Orion logo now. Next, under the opening titles, we see a gopher puppet burrowing a trail through a golf course in the pre-dawn light before pausing to dance to the bass riff that kicks off Kenny Loggins' I'm alright. I think the puppet was the right choice. I know that Harold Ramis didn't want that, but I think it needed to be that silly and ridiculous. I don't know if it would have been in as much of the movie if it was the live action one. I think it would have been more like the Groundhog in Groundhog Day, where it's in a couple shots, but for the most part you don't see it, you just see the damage it's doing. But it's not a character and it's not comic relief unless it's the puppet. Right, and I don't think he wanted it to be. And and Doug Kenny did not want that in the movie at all. Hmm. He didn't want any shots that focus on the gopher. See, and I and I love like the the underground macro shots, mm-hmm. like where it's like it must be in like an oversized puppet version right. of the puppet, puppet. Um, yep. But when people are like reaching down the hole, when you're seeing stuff coming down that hole, it's so the whatever lens they're using on that camera to make it seem like it's so much larger. Well, they also in. everything that they shot that's like underground or the stuff inside the caves shot after the film in like a sound stage with mm-hmm. a really nice camera because it was a controlled atmosphere. Right, right. So everything looks much better because it was shot on like nicer film stock. Even yeah, I mean, I think that because I think this movie would not have been as memorable. If they had done the live action gopher. Because I, agree. I think it wouldn't have been as as ridiculous cartoony over the top. Yeah. And I think it's hard to separate that song with the gopher dancing. Right. 
And so if that song's playing on the radio constantly, you're constantly thinking about that gopher and it's calling that movie to mind in your head. Right. Plus the sounds of the gopher of the dolphin. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> <are> just <laughs> wonderful. Um, but as the gopher is dancing here, we get the Caddyshack logo flying into frame, uh, printed on a, a golf ball and then freezing in the middle of just in midair, uh, which reminds me of the uh, the Happy Madison logo. Yes. Uh, well, I think that's intentional. That, yeah. But that's a golf ball freezing because it hit the camera and yeah. broke through the screen. Uh, next, we cut to the Noonan household. Mom is climbing the stairs, attempting to wake any stragglers in their bountiful brood. Uh, it looks like if the McAllisters were living on food stamps, it's just a bunch of kids crisscrossing through the house. Father Noonan asks a boy at their dining table who he even is before his wife explains, That's your nephew. What are we running, a restaurant? Danny fills his father in on his caddy schedule today, and his dad tells him to put the money into his college fund jar. His parents urge him to pursue a scholarship, and after he leaves, his father says that he'll find Danny work at the lumberyard where he works, which is not what Danny wants. Not coincidentally, Brian Doyle Murray's father also worked at a lumberyard. Danny rides a bike to the Bushwood Country Club. On the green, Danny is a caddy for Ty Webb, played by Chevy Chase. I'm assuming this is a... The name is a reference to Ty Cobb, but he's not... Anything, like Ty Cobb yeah, at all. Yeah, at all like Ty Cobb. But I think Cobb Webb is not unintentional. Danny asks Ty if he ever had any trouble deciding what to do with his life, and Ty does not relate at all. He asks Danny if he takes drugs. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Danny explains that college costs $8,000 a year and that he's going to end up working in the lumberyard like his dad, and Ty tells Danny a secret, that there's a force in the universe that will silently guide you if you let it. Let things happen be the ball to demonstrate he wraps a blindfold over his eyes and reaches for a club blindly yanking them all up at once and scattering them across the grass yeah this kid is really trying hard to keep it together (laughs) for a lot of these scenes because i'm sure chubby chase is just hamming it up all the scenes with danny and ty make me a little bit uncomfortable because they're giving all the punchlines to danny Mm. and i you can tell that it bothers chubby that yeah. this kid is getting all the punchlines like he says a joke like oh do you do drugs and he's like oh every day and he's like okay good like that was that was the joke but it's the kid getting to say the joke and then did you have to take that cooter preference test when you were a senior in high school oh yeah i took it they said i should be a fire watcher <laughs> what are you supposed to be an underachiever and it's like why are you giving all the punchlines to this kid that we've never seen before well because i thought well because I've seen this movie a couple of times. Yeah. But uh, I was watching it with my father and my niece who had never seen it. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, you know, Caddyshack, it's a, a, a known a known movie yeah. that, that she should see. Arguably, she should. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say that. We'll say no, I, I think it's worth seeing. We had a problem focusing on who the main character of this movie is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's supposed to be Danny. Oh, it, it's it definitely was, Danny. In the first draft, it was definitely Danny. I would say. Who do you think it is now? I think it's Smales, actually. Hmm. But, but he's the, it's hard he's to the say. bad guy, though. He is the bad guy, but he, he gets more to do than anybody else does. But Danny but Danny does go through a change. That's true. Yeah, I uh, think Danny's so, definitely the main character. Yeah. But, but we don't spend enough... We spend so Not that so I wanted to spend more. <laughs> well, I but I, I did, but, but we spend so much other time with Rodney Dangerfield, Smales, and Carl, and Ty yeah. away from Danny. Yeah, he's probably not involved. because you cut you know half of the movie out that had more scenes with him in it well that's what happens when you cast like 
five world famous comedians it's like no you have to give them all screen time you have to give them a lot of screen time each you can't just well, you can't just and leave when them they out become the most interesting part of the movie yeah that's a problem once he gets his hands on the wedge though ty is able to pop the ball over a water hazard and within three feet of the hole blindfolded danny is genuinely impressed and ty tells him to give it a shot when danny asks for silence to concentrate ty instead speaks about how much he isn't speaking i'm not talking stop talking not talking now danny misses by a lot on the way into work smale sees the gopher ruining a hole before pulling the flag down into it he shouts for the greenskeeper to take care of it and he blames the cervic construction yard next door for driving all of these gophers under their golf course the assistant greenskeeper carl spackler watches a group of four older women while lusciviously pumping a ball cleaner as though he were masturbating to the scene oh mrs crane you're a little monkey woman you know that you're a little monkey woman. You're lean and you're mean and you're not too far between either, I bet, are you, huh? The greenskeeper pulls him aside and gives him a mission. I want you to kill every gopher on the course. Check me if I'm wrong, Sandy, but if I kill all the golfers, they're going to lock me up and throw away the key. Gophers! <laughs> we can do that. We don't even need a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do the same thing, but with gophers. Gosh! Inside the titular Caddyshack, the manager, Lou, is fielding a lot of calls. He steps out for a moment and asks Danny to take over for him in the cage. Carl corners another caddy with a pitchfork <laughs> and tells him the story of a time he caddied for the Dalai Lama. Uh, the actor's discomfort here is genuine because the scene was fully improvised and Murray repeatedly poked a non-fake pitchfork into his neck and throat. Oh, God. Uh, his story culminates with the Dalai Lama, or Dalai Lama, as he calls him. Yeah. The, the story culminates with the Dalai Lama stiffing him on the tip, but offering in its place total consciousness on his deathbed. You will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. We see the tail end of another caddy, Tony's, experience with an elderly couple called the Haver Camps. They are incapable of following the rules of the game or even connecting with the ball on the tee in front of them. They were based on a real couple that Brian Doyle caddied for regularly who could not knock the ball out of their own shadows. Uh, like he hands the one the club is like, you're going to need this. Yeah. <laughs> she walks, she's just walking away. And then she hits it into the lake and she's like, woohoo! <laughs> like, doesn't, doesn't remember what she's supposed to be doing. Uh, when Tony gets back to the shack, he wants his pay, but Danny can't give it because Lou's out. So then he decides he wants a Coke and Danny explains how the prices have gone up. And the two do a little verbal sparring at the window to this locked cage room until Lou comes back and sets Danny free. And uh, Danny doesn't want to be free right now. He's like, Out. Sure you don't need me for nothing? No. Uh, they move outside for a proper fight, and in the ensuing chaos, a gumball machine is knocked to the floor and shattered. Lou comes out and tells them a couple things. First, that they're all on the short list to get fired for their terrible work ethics. They can easily be replaced by golf carts. And two, that the golf scholarship that had previously been won by a co-worker is now up for grabs again after his untimely death. In the clubhouse, a doctor is overheard on a mobile phone trying to buy more time away from surgery to finish golfing. This is Dr. Beeper, and we'll see more of him. Smales enters and tells Porterhouse, who is in the middle of performing a massage, that a brown Audi is parked in his spot and he wants it towed immediately. Porterhouse agrees, but the man he's massaging quickly rises and escapes, presumably to move his brown Audi. At his locker, Smales also tosses his shoes to Porterhouse, complaining about a subpar shine before bumping into Ty. He asks how he played out there today, 
And Ty says he doesn't keep track. How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. Smales taps another patron on the shoulder to share a racist and sacrilegious joke, and the man turns to reveal a priest's collar and laughs because he's already heard the joke. Porterhouse, being African-American, is less than amused by the racism, and instead of shining the shoes, starts grinding them into a smoky mess. Cervic pulls up in a convertible with a we're-in-the-money horn. And uh, his guest, Mr. Wang, who takes photos incessantly, climbs out of the passenger seat. As soon as they enter the pro shop, he's already pissing Smales off, uh, ripping on a terrible hat that they have for sale before noticing that Smales is wearing one. Oh, it looks good on you, though. Uh, when Lou is handing out caddy assignments, Danny is brown-nosing and asks for Smales, even though nobody wants him. A young girl tries to lift Cervix's insane golf bag and can barely get it off the ground. I think, it, I think that it's important to point out here that they're not trying to make it look like a girl though mm-hmm. that there's oh, a, okay. there's a reveal later yeah that she's a girl so right now she's got her hair all tucked up under her hat and she's you know flat she's a young girl so she's flat chested and dressed just like all the rest of the cats mm-hmm. yes yeah my my niece was surprised of the reveal when she takes off her hat she goes what yeah <laughs> uh this character was originally written to be a young boy but the transportation guy on set recommended his granddaughter for the role because she, she was kind of a tomboy and she got the part. I actually really like that they yeah. they did this and yeah. then they had a reveal. I think I think it's it adds a whole another layer. It's much better than just having to be a boy. Yeah, just another yeah you know anonymous character. Lacey Smales' niece shows up and flaunts her brawlessness in front of the caddies before joining her uncle on the green. He explains to his fellow golfers that she's staying with them for the summer as Spalding shouts all manner of elementary school curse words in the background. Double turns! Spalding! Cervic shows up and starts heckling Smales at the first hole. Cervic says he bets him a hundred bucks that he slices it into the woods, and Smales replies, We don't allow gambling, and I never slice before slicing it into the woods. Okay, you can owe me! Uh, when Cervix steps up to the ball, he presses the driver button on his remote, and it comes flying right out of the bag for him. Danny looks the other way while Smales kicks the ball from the tree line, correcting for the interference he dealt with earlier. He asks how Ty golfed this morning, guessing 80, 75, and Danny says, more like 68, I think. And Smales doesn't believe this for a second, yeah. because he's not very good at golf, and he's furious that anyone else is. Uh, Cervic hits a wild shot and yells four, but nobody on the green reacts. I feel like you're all supposed to duck when you hear someone shout four. And and he was correct yeah. in doing what he, he – he did not commit any infraction. Yeah. Smales doesn't react and ends up taking one of his orange golf balls right in the crotch. <laughs> and then Cervic uh, says – I should have yelled two. Tony sets down Cervic's enormous golf bag. Asking, I'm sorry, I can't get over it. Every time you say cervix, it sounds like you're saying cervix. Everyone's <laughs> name is a joke in this movie. <laughs> but when cervix tears off the front panel, revealing a car stereo. So let's dance! And cranks journeys any way you want at full blast across the course. Uh, Smales chips a ball, surprisingly close to camera here, and turns angrily to the source of the music. Danny tells Smales that he's considered going into law. Uh, specifically uh, <laughs> like uh, sound violations <laughs> <laughs> he's like oh yeah you could hire me as an attorney to do exactly this kind of work if you put me through law school um and he says oh but my family can't afford it and then smales says well the world needs ditch diggers too smales's niece lacy applauds his effort <laughs> as she passes though nice try uh we cut to carl lugging a flesh tone hose between his legs to the gopher's hole intending to flood him out 
as he sings. How about a nice cool drink? He sees the gopher surface at another hole and leaps for it, getting bit in the hand, and then he shoves in the hose and cranks the water up, only to find that the gopher's hole connects all over the green and is now spouting everywhere. Cervic shows off a couple more inventions, a beer tap, a television, and some kind of course-correcting scope Mm -hmm. that's attached to his putter to perfect his form. Spalding approaches the concessions counter with smiles and places a long meandering order from pretty far away Mm -hmm. uh, as he's walking up. He's like, I want a hamburger, no, a cheeseburger. I want a hot dog, I want a milkshake, I want potato You'll get nothing and like it. Maggie and Danny have a seat at the table behind her stand and make a date for tonight. Servic catches Smales about to finish a game, inches from the hole, and bets him a grand that he'll miss. It draws the attention of a lot of onlookers, and Smales chokes before angrily throwing his club back toward the clubhouse, striking a female customer and destroying a picnic table. Danny takes the credit for the club being slippery before they're able to sneak away from this uh, disagreement and smales thanks him for the excuse he recommends that danny try for that scholarship because he knows that it's back up for grabs that night carl spackler takes a flashlight and he tapes it to a rifle while he's loading it he's reciting action movie narration about a man issued a license to kill varmints and that's all we get here really yeah Um, it won't come come into play till later across the club a party is underway danny and maggie are waiting tables danny is absentmindedly slicing pad after pad of butter onto a plate for Lacey until she points it out. Cervic tells Maggie to tell the chef the food tastes like dog food. Dangerfield is basically just working his way through his regular stand-up set here at the table. He was generally inexperienced on movie sets, and he had all this prepared stuff, so that kind of became what his character was going to say for Mm -hmm. the movie. But he got really mad because nobody was laughing (laughs) at the jokes, and he like kept going to Ramus. He's like, I don't understand why no one's laughing. And they're like, he's like, they can't laugh. It messes up the take if they laugh. No one's <laughs> supposed. He's like, oh, okay. Well, why didn't you tell me that before? Apparently, he also wouldn't respond to the word action. So Ramus had to say it repeatedly before explaining. When I say action, that's when you start. And he says, so that's when I do my bit. Yeah. Okay. Action. Nothing. <laughs> Eventually, hello, hello, Mr. Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> Ramus would just cue Rodney by saying, "Hey, Rodney, do your bit now." <laughs> step on your foot now yeah (laughs) i think he's talking to you uh we hard cut to the chef reacting to the message that maggie actually bothered to convey to the kitchen dog food i'll show him dog food maggie pulls danny aside and warns him against pursuing lacy insisting that she's a huge whore so that will scare a teenage guy away carl all taped up in branches, sneaks around on the greens and trains his crosshair at the head of the gopher holes. He says that he can smell varmint poontang. And the only good varmint poontang is dead varmint poontang. So are we to assume this is a female gopher? Apparently. Ty enters the party and quickly catches the eye of Lacey. He takes her outside and they flirt a bit. He asks what she does and she says, I enjoy skinny skiing. Going to bullfights on acid. I bet you got a lot of nice ties. What do you mean? You want to tie me up with some of your ties? This is another character who gets put in a scene with Chevy Chase and they give her all the punchlines. 
which I thought was weird that because all of Chevy's stuff that he's doing is physical comedy and it mm-hmm. seems improvised, but they didn't really give him a lot to work with. So he's having to make up his half of these scenes. He moves to kiss her when Carl fires a shot and shatters a lantern near both of them. Spalding is moving through this party, just downing all of the orphan drinks yeah. until he chugs one with a cigarette in it. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, he moves outside to throw up and does so into the sunroof of a parked luxury car. <laughs> Moments later, a couple exit and the driver sits in the vomit puddle, nearly causing his wife to also vomit. I don't think you could get into a car... Without noticing that? Yeah. Well, without noticing it, it, just opening the door, you'd smell it, yeah. let alone see something on the seat. That's true. The next day, Danny is out caddying for Ty and discussing his college prospects while Ty does a bunch of trick shots while making na 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 sounds like the $6 million man. Just when it looks like he's missed a shot, we see that it was actually to set up a final trick shot where Chevy himself jumps a ball over another ball into the hole. So good on him for actually performing this trick. It's more than we can say for anyone in the movie Baltimore Bullet. (laughs) Nobody does any of their own trick shots. The official caddy tournament is underway. This will go a long way to locking you into the caddy scholarship that everyone's after. I I, I love the dramatic shot of the... uh, the first prize trophy yeah and then as the camera pulls out and tilts down you see one that it not only is it extremely small but you see the prizes uh, associated with them and the second place is a pair of socks (laughs) (laughs) um danny wins this first round handily even with the shrieking and calls of from his friends around the hole Smales invites Danny to mow his lawn and then meet up at the christening of his boat later at the yacht club. He goes to Maggie's to celebrate and Tony tries to watch them have sex from outside until Danny pulls the windows shut. Uh, We cut to the pool sign, uh, which grants the caddies permission to use it for 15 minutes a day (laughs) from from like 1 to to 1.15. Right on the dot at the start time, people are running full speed with clothes some are still carrying golf bags and just fall into the pool as they're running so this is where we get the reveal finally yes so uh, the the kid that was having trouble lifting the golf bag right she takes, takes off, off her, her hat, hat and, and her she hair takes is very off long her sh- yeah, yeah her hair is really long and then she takes off her shirt and she's wearing a you know a, a full a girl's female bathing, bathing suit, suit. Yeah. yeah danny and maggie arrive at the pool and tony immediately tries to hit on her and he asks how was it and she says how was what and he says couldn't have been that great then tony and danny square off to fight again when lacy enters and they're both suddenly frozen in place she passes them slowly and moves directly to the diving board like maggie keeps trying to get her their attention by coughing <laughs> she, yeah she's like <laughs> like making weird <laughs> sounds between them but uh and apparently she's adorable she is great i love her I always had a crush on her back when I would like the first time I watched this movie, I was like, this girl's adorable. I don't know if it's just the Irish accent or what, but just before she gets to the diving board, we have to cut because the actress playing Lacey here is basically legally blind and she couldn't wear contact lenses in the pool. So there's one shot where she walks up to the slide and takes a hold of the ladder. And then the next shot she's already climbing up because they had to take her contact lenses out and lead her back to the slide so that she could hold on to it. And then she climbs up and does her jump off the top. Or the the diving board. board. It's a slide in the second one, oddly enough. Oh, that's weird. 
But yeah, she she couldn't see at all, so they had to lead her to the diving board. But did she do that dive herself? Because it's a very nice dive. It is a nice dive, and she she lands it flawlessly. That was her. I think it was her. I guess there's a cut there, so they could have replaced her with a professional diver. They may have, because I don't know that if I were blind, I'd want to dive off of that diving board. I definitely would. No, I I wouldn't want to do it, and I can see fine. Tony gives up on Maggie to pursue this girl, and a group of caddies perform a synchronized swimming routine to Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker. The lifeguard yells at the caddies to stop roughhousing in the pool until his entire tower is tipped over into the water. I do enjoy when they're synchronized swimming that one's still wearing shoes. Yeah, he's got like shorts and <laughs> shoes. Well, and, and I like that the, the lifeguard is what he's mad about this. Yeah, he's, yeah, he wasn't mad earlier when they were like punching each other or like jumping in with all their clothes on, but just a nice organized <laughs> routine is what sets him off. On the side of the pool, someone offers to share a chocolate bar that is either called Baby Rut or Baby Runt, depending on the camera angle we're looking at. Uh, it's obviously supposed to be a Baby Ruth, but they changed the label on the bar two different ways. The The person she's trying to share the chocolate bar with takes the whole thing and just throws it in the pool like a complete asshole. Yeah, that's our, our caddy. That's a girl. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the girl that was offering it is like, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, why would you do that? I don't know. It's so mean. She was giving you a full chocolate bar to share. Just as Mrs. Smales arrives to eject the caddies, a girl in the pool is losing her top and the score of the film is emulating Jaws as the kids are continuing to have fun until a girl notices the duty and everyone scrambles madly for the sides of the pool. Well, and I think the editing here is what's really like hammers home the jaws aspect that it's so close to everybody and and it keeps cutting like hard cutting to to the to the swimming and then back to the back to the swimming like the like the chaos of the water and it's a pov of somebody who's wearing like goggles and a snorkel as if they were that pov of the shark yeah later we see carl draining the pool and he finds the chocolate bar on the floor of the pool and he gets the attention of smales for telling them it's no big deal. And then takes a big bite out of it. Uh, and uh, Smales' wife just faints at this. That's probably the only scripted thing that Bill Murray doesn't like. Yeah, probably. Oh my God, I love that scene so much. Actually, I've, I've heard, th- there are rumors that he wasn't supposed to take a bite out of it. That he was just supposed to like, it was supposed to be gross enough that he was holding it. Oh, really? But I feel like they definitely would have known he was going to take a bite out of it for that joke. But that joke is so much better if he takes a bite out of it. Especially since he doesn't say, it's just a chocolate bar. He says, it's no big deal. And then he takes a bite out of it. But the Baby Ruth scene apparently actually happened at Brian Doyle Murray's high school. Like it was a chocolate bar? Yeah, it was a chocolate bar. And they they had to drain the whole pool before they figured out it was a chocolate bar. Amazing. Lacey pays Ty a visit and pelts him with a bunch of out-of-place one-liners. Who's your decorator, Benny Hanna? And it's like, why are you, why are you doing the jokes here? Because he's just like, the, he's the straight man in this scene. He's not yeah. saying anything yet. He says that he collected his swords in Vietnam, and she's surprised to learn that he served in the war, and then he slaps his hip as if to draw attention to an injury and says, Uh, no. Homo. Much better now, though. <laughs> which you can tell he just made that joke up on the spot like they didn't give him anything to say it seems from the production notes i was able to gather that cindy morgan who plays Lacey, did not get along with chevy which is a shocker <laughs> uh but i think she hides it well in the scene 
Her bigger problem seems to have been with producer John Peters, who insisted at every turn that she perform all of her romantic scenes fully nude, which she was not interested in doing. She didn't even want to be topless. But he, John Peters, was on the phone with her and Ramus and basically told her if she didn't do them at least topless that she would never work again. And she broke down and did those scenes. Later, he actually brought a photographer from Playboy to shoot a full promotional spread with her on the set. And she was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And her, she called her agent and her agent was like, you know, this wouldn't be terrible for you if you did it. And Harold Ramis finally had to step in and say, no, we're not doing this. Cancel wow. it. Send the photographer back to Playboy. This I, is stupid. I can't believe her saying I'm not doing that isn't enough. Yeah. But they use that as like, okay, well, that's where we're starting this debate. And then we'll work our way towards a compromise. And it's that, like, no, no, no. It's not a compromise situation. That reminds me. I had a question. Yeah. So in the scene in the pool, there's a there's a shot where somebody dives under the water and steals the guy's um, bathing Trunks, suit. Yeah, and he's yeah. wearing a jock strap. And he's okay. I was wondering if that was like f- movie magic that he's supposed to be naked and he's actually just wearing something that's flesh toned to try to cover it up. No, or no, if no. That was a jock strap. Yeah. Do you guys actually wear jock straps under a bathing suit? I don't. <laughs> unless i Does plan wink. on being especially <laughs> aggressive in the pool is that something that people do i don't know maybe okay i think it's just a, a way to pants someone and not have a dick floating around in your movie yeah but you got boobs all over the place yeah nobody complains about boobs in a movie nobody wants to see a dick equal parts time i would say that there are are more bare-chested men than bare-chested women in this movie oh there you go <laughs> oh, <laughs> no not tushies <laughs> Lacey and Ty sit at a keyboard while he sings her a quick love song. I was born to love you. I was born to lick your face. I was born to rub you. But you were born to rub me first. Let's go into uh, the patio. <laughs> he like starts to lead her out of the room. I we hope cut that to... was improvised. I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> we cut to a sensual massage where Ty mistakenly slips the entire bottle of oils open and splashes it across her back which was also not scripted and her reaction is not scripted because she's like are you crazy what are you doing but the the scene all of her reactions in the scene are so genuine yeah i like that they that they're not scripted yeah and he slips when he tries to (laughs) yeah he's trying to get off of her and he just falls (laughs) on the ground she calls him crazy and he says that's what they said about the son of sam which is such a weird (laughs) response to that yeah, you don't want to be alone yeah. with a guy when he says that. Yeah. Um, he takes a toothpick from their martini and he slips the olives off of it and threatens to use it for acupuncture over her very serious objections. And uh, that's when he moves to kiss her. But her, her back and his front are slick with oil and he falls to the floor. And she collapses to the bed yeah. in the scene, like laughing. Yeah. And it's so genuine. I love it. Danny shows up at the yacht club in a full captain's uniform. Dr. Beeper goes to bug a table full of stoners for a hit of whatever they've got when his phone goes off. And when he's still wet from the water, he zaps himself trying to answer it. His his acting for that actually makes me laugh pretty hard. Because he has to, like, slap it out of his hand. (laughs) Onto the ground. And uh, the crowd is invited over to watch the christening of the sloop, which is a single-masted sailboat for anyone besides me who would have to look that up. And uh, on the way, Danny is introduced to a single-serving character named Chuck Schick, a student or graduate of Harvard Law, who condescends to Danny a bit until Lacey shows up to steal him away. 
when Mrs. Smales smashes the champagne bottle on the bow of the flying wasp. I love that. <laughs> uh, she breaks off a large part of the ship, and uh, the bottle does not break at all. Servic notices from further out in the water on his yacht, his like mega yacht, that, uh, oh, it's my buddy. And uh, he just blasts full speed straight towards them. I I hate the music in this part. It's just that same over and over and over again. Yeah. It, it, it really got to me. I had to leave the room to go get like something to eat. Cause I can't, <laughs> cannot stand this music anymore. Yeah. But uh, he, he's just going straight forward through all these ships and between people on like skidoos and crashes a boat in half. And he manages to barely stop short of destroying Smales' boat. But then he drops his anchor and he goes right through his whole ship, sinking it officially. Uh, I guess not officially because he says later that he just needs to repair it, not that it's a total loss. Uh, and I don't know how you can repair. That, yeah, that ship has got to be at the bottom of that dock yeah. right now. It can't. It can't possibly have survived this. We cut to another sex scene with Lacey. This time at her uncle's home, that the EP envisioned as being fully nude. In an effort to make Lacey more comfortable, Danny suggested that, and the crew agreed to shoot the scenes with the entire crew shirtless. But that actually made things way weirder. <laughs> Smales enters and chases Danny around with a golf club, even into the bathroom where his wife is showering, and they exchange perverted glances. Uh, Smales busts a hole in the door, and we get a little bit of Danny Torrance, but it's almost too early for this to have been an intentional Shining reference. Th- that That is what I said during the movie. I was like, are they trying to make a Shining reference? Because that just came out. I don't know if it was in a trailer or something that had come out before that, maybe, but it feels like it's an intentional reference. Mm-hmm. But... And that was what? That was June of this year? May yeah. or June. Well, so, so okay, hold on. You think that, and and you said Danny, you mean Jack, right? Jack Torrance? Well, oh, the yeah. character's name is Danny in Caddyshack. Yeah, but it, she's right. I did say Danny Torrance. So you think that just because he knocks a hole in the door to try to get to somebody who he's trying to get to on the other side, it's a Shining reference. I think when someone knocks a hole in a door to a bathroom in a murderous rage and puts their face up to the hole carrying a large metal weapon that it seems like an intentional reference. I don't know. I think it's a coincidence. It's possible that it was, but if it is, it was a happy coincidence, I'm sure, because there's no way they didn't know that it would look like The Shining in that scene. I guess. I don't know. I feel like if you were trying to make it an intentional reference, you would have done a better job at it. You would have made a bigger hole. More of his face would have come through. He would have had an axe. Something. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, because I think think having a golf club over an axe would would make it funnier for this movie. What is he he hitting it? It's a golf club. Okay, he is using a golf club. Okay, that Uh, makes sense, I guess. uh, But yeah, unless they filmed it afterwards... Which I don't think they did. Uh, I'm looking at the original script right now, uh, which is crazy because everything's out of order. Oh, weird. Um, like, all the scenes are uh, completely out of order. This is something we might do for our uh, our early draft table reads when we get to that level. God, I don't need another podcast to yes, edit. Yes, you do. <laughs> we, we're not going to edit those. <laughs> That's going out raw. Raw. Do Sorry. a search for the word loofah. Why well, I, I can't because <laughs> do a the, search for the word loofah. His <laughs> uh, face turns bright red. Uh, it just says uh, Smell starts beating down the door with his club. That's okay. it. Interesting. Back at the club, we see Carl 
narrating the famous Cinderella story. Tears in his eyes, I guess, as he, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left, and he's gonna. Looks like he's got about an eight iron. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story, out of nowhere. A former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. <clears throat> it looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! As he golfs the heads off of a row of white mums. The only reason Patrick knows they're mums is because of Animal Crossing. <laughs> True. True fact. <laughs> Suddenly, the bishop walks up demanding a caddy, and Carl is roped into this duty. Just as he gets going, it starts raining, though. Wind is blowing his overshots back into the hole, and the bishop quickly realizes that he could break the club record if this streak holds. Uh, he's a few holes in, and he's doing spectacularly well. A club employee advises him to head in until the rain stops, but he checks with Carl, who says, No, I don't think the heavy stuff's going to come down for some time. The storm is insane here in the next shot. Like, it's getting progressively crazier with every cut, and now it looks like hurricane force winds just blowing right at them. Uh, it's funny, too, because it looks like the bishop is having to support Bill Murray coming up the hill as opposed <laughs> to the other way around. At the last hole, he misses a putt, and as he shakes his club at God, he shouts... Oh, and is struck by lightning. And we're getting a bit of the uh, theme from the Ten Commandments here as God is striking down the bishop on the 18th hole. But uh, this actor was also in the Ten Commandments movie. Was he really? Yeah. Carl sneaks away just leaving this body in the rain, which always seemed dark to me. Maggie finds Danny in the locker room at the caddy shack. She tells him that she's late. And he says, for what? And she says, for not being pregnant. He agrees to do the right thing, whatever she chooses and even proposes to her <laughs> she says well that's all i need <laughs> uh, <laughs> she tries to let him off the hook explaining that it's not even for sure his kid and he says all right well i'm still willing to marry you oh yeah yeah well takes for nothing <laughs> before she runs off lou walks up after she leaves and he says she needs you pick up that kleenex because <laughs> she dropped a kleenex after she walked away a representative of the club comes to collect Danny to see Smales right away. Smales is basically over what happened as long as Danny's willing not to share what happened with anyone. I love when he comes into his office, sit down, Danny. And he's already sitting. <laughs> and when they're trying to have the conversation with the lamp is in the way. <laughs> yeah. He goes back and forth complimenting and threatening Danny. He says, you know, I've sent his boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it. Felt I owed it to them <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean uh danny promises to make up for his mistakes and smales refers to him as mr scholarship winner implying that hey if you don't tell people about my niece being a whore then you can have money for school in the bar at the clubhouse the bartender is making another drink for the bishop who's looking pretty ragged now <laughs> smales reprimands him for drinking too much as a man of god and he says i'm just a man same as you and he says you're not a man you're a bishop for god's sake and he says there is no god because <laughs> he's so mad about losing his golf game earlier he looks so ragged in this scene i wasn't even sure it was the same guy yeah somehow he grew like a beard yeah. from when he fell on the course uh cervic enters and he and smells are very quickly entangled in a shouting match Smales has his hands around Cervic's neck when the fight is broken up and Smales accuses Cervic of trying to strangle him while Rodney spouts his catchphrase, don't get no respect. Talk of lawsuits goes both ways until Ty offers to mediate the disagreement and Smales' office with drinks. 
Maggie dances around the 18th hole in her pajamas. Apparently, she lives on the grounds. I know. I was so confused by this. I'm like, how is she there in her pajamas? Like, did she run all the way from her house? Does she sleep on the golf course? She just lives in the attic at the caddy shack. (laughs) Well, Danny goes to see her, and there's like several other girls sitting out on a porch. And I don't know. That's true. It's pretty close to the greens. Yeah. So I don't know if she's like living in some kind of like campus. I don't, I don't, she doesn't seem like she goes to school. But maybe there's a thing for like, because she's waiting tables there and she's doing other tasks. Maybe. maybe there's a dorm for employees. Yeah. But also, why would you run off into the golf course? And you, you, She obviously wouldn't have known that Danny was there. Was she yeah. just running off to be gleeful? And why was he there? <laughs> like, it's weird it's that both of them are there. It's strange that either of them were there. Yeah. Danny finds her and she reveals that she is no longer pregnant. We're assuming that she had her period yeah that saying that well, she's no longer pregnant sounds like she had an abortion well no, she, she says or as much. a baby <laughs> she, she says as much that she had her period yeah so they're, they're relieved and she apologizes and he apologizes because they've both been awful to each other uh back in smales's office cervic pitches a wager he wants to play a round of golf for twenty thousand dollars and he suggests teams putting judge smales with dr beeper and selecting ty as his own partner uh, Smales pulls Ty aside to talk him out of the game, reminding him that he and Ty's father built this place, but Ty says that his dad always hated Smales. He says, let's make it 40000 So now the wager is on. Each of them is putting 40000 up for the game. The gopher watches through a window as Carl is making animals out of plastic explosives. Ty is out practicing for the gamble when he knocks a ball right into Carl's shack. This is obviously their only scene together in anything ever as they famously hated each other uh chevy chase and bill murray but uh they were apparently very professional on this set they wrote the scene like at lunch that day because they were getting to the end of the movie and the two of them didn't have a scene in the script together they wanted one well i think harold ramus wanted the two funniest people in america if they were going to be in the same movie to have a scene together but the scene makes me very uncomfortable to watch because neither of them is the leading character of the scene and I'm, I feel like I'm wa- the whole time I'm watching it, I'm constantly trying to judge whether anyone is being upstaged or trying to upstage. And it seems like they're both trying to out-subtle each other to avoid getting tagged as like the ham of the scene. But uh, the result is, just feels awkward to me. And neither of them has like a straight punchline. It's just kind of like... Well, and it's also completely pointless. Yeah. There's, it, not, there's no point to this. Scene. Yeah, it doesn't service the, the story. He's asking him about uh, the, pl- the place where he lives and he's like oh you got a, you got a pool over there and he's like oh well we got a pool and a pond a uh, pond's good for you <laughs> and when he says, or, or, or the pool <laughs> yeah. like bill murray is like really stressing that he wants to be in the pool yeah <laughs> ty decides to play through even though his ball landed in carl's dinner he replaces the ball on a patch of experimental grass that carl has developed which is a hybrid of kentucky bluegrass and northern california sensamia which he says the amazing stuff about this is you can play 36 holes on it in the afternoon, take it home and just get stoned in a bejesus belt that night on his stuff. Um, and then he offers Chevy a joint. <laughs> and Chevy seems like, like uh, you know, Ty, S.I., sorry, I can call him yeah. Chevy. He's just like, no, no, no. He goes, well, I made it just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then they keep going back and forth with it and then taking chugs of it, it, it honestly, it just feels like, 
like a hell week at a fraternity where like <laughs> Bill Murray just pulled out this joint and Chevy Chase had, didn't know what it was and wasn't prepared for this, but he can't say no because it's obviously funnier if he takes it. And so he just keeps, he gives them the joint and then he gives them the drink to, to cannonball it. And then he gives them another joint and then he's like, cannonball it again. All right, you got to go back and forth, back and forth. And he keeps making it do it until he's like clearly on the verge of throwing up. And finally uh, he just turns to hit his ball back out of the shack and that's the end of the scene. Uh, Carl notes Ty's apparent nerves here, and he tries to explain about the game with Smales tomorrow. Carl says, well, that's no problem. See, what you do is you take this knife and you slash his ankles open, and then uh, he'll never play golf again. <laughs> uh, the next day, Cervic and Ty drive a convertible right up to hole one. Uh, Smales <laughs> runs up to the car after Cervic got out. So it's just Ty in the car, and he says, you get that car off the green this instant. And Ty turns as though to move the car and pretends to be shocked when the steering wheel is on the other side of it. <laughs> oh, look at that. Don't play games with me, Ty. Put that steering wheel over here where it belongs and get this out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Getting out of the car to join the game, though, Ty accidentally slams his fingers in the car door, which I think the first time we watched it, Andrea thought I was going to be laughing hysterically the whole time. And... I didn't until this line, which just killed me. When he slaves his hand to the door, he goes, Don't do it. I didn't do that. <laughs> it's I a just, convincing uh, slapstick, though. Well, I that's mean, his thats his whole wheelhouse. He's so great at that stuff. Yeah. it's. It, I was convinced he did actually yeah. slam his fingers through the door. <laughs> yeah. But I like that he says, Don't do it. I didn't do that. Because it, it feels like... The implication is that in his head he was thinking, don't slam your hand on the door, don't slam your hand on the door. Don't do it! I didn't do that! <laughs> uh, but uh, before the game starts, Lou, that's the Brian Doyle Murray character, asks that everyone agree not to fire him for his officiating here today. Uh, Cervic bribes him to keep the game fair, and he's like, oh, I, I can't take your money. He's like, just take, take the money. <laughs> Ty tries to collect a driver from Danny, only to learn that Danny is caddying for Smiles, Smiles reluctantly. Uh, a crowd starts to gather when word gets out that there's a big money game on the on the field. Carl loads up the gopher holes with plastic explosive animals, and Cervic is playing a real bad game today. I don't know that he's ever a great golfer, but today he's having a particularly bad game, and Ty's not doing well either because of his nerves and hand injury. The caddies start betting on everything, including whether Spalding will pick his nose and subsequently eat it. He does. Smales goes to harass Cervic, because he's, you know, he's got the upper hand right now. They're winning at, at the halfway point, and he gets Cervic to double the bet again. So now it's $40,000 per player, 80000 total per team. Cervic quickly fakes an injury so that they can sub in Danny Noonan to take his place. Well, I, I think the intention of the injury was to forfeit, right? To, to be a draw. But then they're like, oh, it's a forfeit. Well, then you guys lose. And then they're like, well, no, they can they can pick a substitute. And they say, okay, well, then we'll take uh, we'll take Danny. And Smale says, well, he can't because he's an employee of the club. But Cervix says that he he promises to make it worth his while. And between these two people, you should trust Cervix over Smales. Yeah. Because right. Smales is going to screw you. He tipped you 50 cents when you took credit for him almost killing a woman. And Cervix is just throwing money at people this whole time. So Danny takes the spot and Smales tells him that he just cost him the scholarship. And he's like, yeah, I guess so. Ty pulls him aside and says, you need to win this one. And Danny reminds him, I thought you said winning wasn't important. And then he says, Me winning isn't. You do. Great grammar. At the final hole, the match has evened up. Four balls are putting distance from the hole. 
Dr. Beeper gets there in two hits, and Smales calls out the old Billy Baru, a fancy-looking putter in a purple silk sock. Uh, silk purple sock? I don't think it's fancy. I think it's just, like, old school. Like yeah, whatever lucky. it is, it's important. It's and uh, he's able to sink it in one shot. Ty takes two shots, meaning that Danny now needs to sink this in one to tie it up. Uh, here is where Rodney kind of screws up the movie a little bit. Uh, his line was probably, let's double it again that he makes it, 80000 But instead he says, hey, judge, double enough that he makes it, 80000 Yeah, essentially essentially making the whole golf game pointless. Yeah. Because now it's just down to this shot. Right. But whoever proposes double or nothing is, first of all, admitting that they've lost the first wager and that they're offering a second wager that would either double the person's winnings or cancel out their debt. So worst case scenario here for Cervic is that he owes Smales double, and the best case is that their debt is canceled and nobody owes anybody anything. Yeah. Uh, Danny gets the ball right to the edge of the hole where it stops, and because the ball has come to a complete stop, the game, according to the rules of golf, is over, and Smales has won $80,000 each from Ty and Cervic. Instead... Carl chooses this exact moment to trigger his explosives, and the golf course was obviously not cool with bombing their greens, so a large hill was constructed to blow up instead, which is partially obscured by a tree in the shot. But the flames were much bigger than the filmmakers had anticipated, of course. They completely blew up the entire hill that they built, and the explosions of the film's climax were reported by passing pilots as an apparent plane crash. Oh no. Uh, Flames and smoke chased the gopher through his hole, the shaking of the course by the explosion causes the ball to tip into the hole. Lou's the only person still watching it. Yeah. But eventually everyone else turns their attention on it. And uh, he declares a victory on behalf of Ty and Cervic when Smales tries to welch on the debt there, implying he still owes, but he doesn't, technically. Uh, Cervic sends two goons after him, and we close the film on the gopher puppet, having survived the explosion and dancing to Kenny Loggins' I'm All Right Again. And that's the end of our film. Our director here was Harold Ramis. The writer of Ghostbusters, Stripes, and Groundhog Day. He also wrote Back to School, Armed and Dangerous, Meatballs, Animal House. He obviously directed Groundhog Day and Multiplicity. And he plays Egon. He's Russell in Stripes. He's Don Durkett in Orange County. Sean, you're my same height. That That is is neat. neat. (laughs) (laughs) Writer Brian Doyle Murray here. He plays Lou Loomis in the film. He's also Frank Shirley, Clark Griswold's boss in Christmas Vacation. Uh, he plays Noah Vanderhoff in Wayne's World. Uh, he's Buster in Groundhog Day. He's Earl Cross, Frank's father in the Scrooge flashback. I'm only four. <laughs> uh, he's the voice of the Flying Dutchman on SpongeBob. Yeah. And he's also Captain Knuckles on That's Marvelous right. Misadventures of Flapjack, which are basically the same character. But it's a great one. I really love Captain Knuckles. He's maybe one of my favorite cartoon characters of yeah. all time. Yeah, amazing. Um, writer Douglas Kenny uh, co-founded the National Lampoon magazine with Henry Beard. Uh, he wrote Animal House and Caddyshack. See, that, and, and that's what I thought. I thought this was a National Lampoon's movie. I don't know why it wasn't because it has so many National Lampoon players and SNL people. Yeah, I, I, I was, so when I was introducing it to my niece, I said, "Yeah, so this is National Lampoon's Caddyshack." And I was watching, look, looking at it, I was like, "There is no National Lampoon on here." Yeah, that's that is weird. I didn't think about that, but I, I guess because Harold Ramis was actually in the on the short list to direct animal house and then john landis got that mm-hmm. and then ivan reitman or john landis wanted to direct caddyshack but harold ramus was like no I, I got this one but uh douglas kenny here appears in the film as a balding man in a tuxedo when rodney advises two people dancing to get a room 
Uh, he's talking to them. He is also portrayed by Will Forte in a wonderful film called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which tells his full life story, or at least the story of his career, ending with, it's basically just after the release of Caddyshack, when he tragically died by falling off a cliff while vacationing in Hawaii. Uh, Kenny was very depressed at the time and had been struggling with substance abuse, but it was officially ruled an accident, and notes for a future project were found scribbled out on a notepad in his hotel room, so... He had at least plans for the future, although a fellow National Lampoon author, Chris Miller, morbidly joked that Doug was looking for a better place to jump from when he slipped. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chevy Chase plays Ty Webb here. This was his second film this year after Oh Heavenly Dog, and he'll be back for Seems Like Old Times in 1980. He was considered earlier this year for American Gigolo and Airplane, uh, and eventually passed on both. Although I think it, with the case of Airplane, he was passed on. I think uh, with American Gigolo, he was just someone they were considering at one point. He's probably best known as Clark Griswold from the five-film vacation franchise. He's one of the Amigos, he's Fletch, and he plays a doctor in dirty work that makes me laugh. Rodney Dangerfield was Al Cervic. This was his first major film role, but he'll be back in Back to School, Rover Dangerfield, <laughs> Ladybugs, and uh, I think he was, was he Juliette Lewis's dad in Natural Born Killers? I was it her recall. in that movie? I have not seen that one. I'm trying to remember who the two main characters of that movie are. It was Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, and Rodney Dangerfield as her dad. Okay. So him and Chevy Chase have both played Juliette Lewis's father. <laughs> so that's fun. Ted Knight was Judge Elihu Smales. E-L-I-H-U Smales. It's a very uh, weird name. Yeah. He plays Ted Baxter on Mary Tyler Moore Show, which yeah. I didn't actually watch, but... But I think that that's probably his most famous thing yeah. that people know him from. He also has a lot of voice acting credits um, for DC cartoons. He was a narrator on Super Friends. He was Commissioner Gordon on some stuff. He was Flash on some things. Uh, Michael O'Keefe was Danny Noonan. He plays Ben Meacham in The Great Santini. Uh, he plays Barry Grissom in Michael Clayton. Uh, he was Hugh Axton in the 2011 Atlas Shrugged. And he also plays grandpa harry in macgyver reboot season two episode four yeah <laughs> x-ray plus penny obviously that's a flashback because he's not old enough to play grandpa macgyver's grandfather bill murray was carl spackler we had him earlier this year as hunter thompson and where the buffalo roam he's in a lot of ramus movies a lot of wes anderson movies and a couple jim jarmusch movies sarah holcomb was maggie o'hooligan she's great but she, not a lot of credits. No, she previously appeared in Animal House, but basically retired from acting after this film. Her reasons for retiring boiled down to issues with schizophrenia that were exacerbated by the prolific cocaine use on the set of this film by the entire cast. And her life story was actually dramatized in the 2004 film Stateside with Rachel Lee Cook playing the part of Sarah. I haven't seen the movie, but I did start looking into it. Scott Columbia plays Tony Denunzio. And that was one of the other caddies. He plays Brian Schwartz in Porky's. He did ADR work in the 90s for Newsies, Dazed and Confused, Demolition Man, River Wild, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Saving Private Ryan, and Fight Club. That's a fun list of movies. He also dated Cindy Morgan for a couple years after this film was made. Cindy Morgan played Lacey Underall. She was also Laura and Yori in Tron. But she also doesn't have a lot of credits. Yeah. But, uh, you, but Tron, yep. always got to get a Tron. That's all you need. I, 
who are those characters? It's the, been a the, very long the time. The female lead. The, yeah, the female okay. lead. Yes. Sorry, it's been super long time since I've seen the first. Well, we need movie. to fix that. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll get there, right? Was it 81? 82. 82? 84? Was it 82? 87? Mm-hmm. Okay. 86? For some reason, I thought it was earlier than that. Henry Wilcoxon was the bishop. He played Pentar in The Ten Commandments. He played the vicar in Miss Miniver. Um, and I think he's also in a sequel to Miss Miniver. I forget what it was called now. And he plays Mark Antony in Cecil B. DeMille's Cleopatra, which was led by Claudette Colbert in 1934. Albert Salmi played Mr. Noonan. He was Rory Polk in Blue Baker. Blue Baker? Brew Baker. He was E1 in Escape from Planet of the Apes, but we didn't know what that meant. Uh, <laughs> we still don't. <laughs> we still don't. Haven't looked into it. Uh, he was Greel in Dragon Slayer and Smirnikov in The Brothers Karamazov. Anne Ryerson was Grace. Who's Grace? No Who's idea. Grace in this movie? Uh, Somebody's Anne Grace. Maybe Ryerson. that's Ryerson. Yeah. Well, I I don't doubt that her name was an inspiration for Ramus's later script, Groundhog Day. But she also played Katie in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six and Doctor Catherine James in Minority Report. Well, she was born in '49, so she must have been someone uh, youngish. Youngish. Maybe she's the mother of the Noonan house. She'd be. She'd only be thirty. Uh, but because both his parents seem pretty old. Maybe it's the older sister at the Noonan house that's Could complaining be. at the bathroom door at the beginning. I don't know. Uh, Bruce McLaughlin uh, plays old crony. Uh, not sure who that is, but he played doctor number two in the island earlier this year. <laughs> uh, Violet Ramus played one of the Noonan children. That is the daughter of Harold Ramus. And she also plays a production assistant in the movie Stuart Saves His Family. She wasn't a PA on the film. She plays a production assistant in the <laughs> film. Uh, John Murray plays another one of the caddies. I actually didn't notice him in here. But uh, the other thing I know him from mostly is from playing James Cross, uh, Frank's bro in Scrooged. SS Minnow, James. What was the ship that brought them all to Gilligan's Island? The SS Minnow. That Everybody wasn't Brian that. in that one? Brian Doyle Murray plays his dad in the flashback. Yeah. Oh, they look so much alike. Oh, that I, well, I, I think the other than Bill and Brian Doyle, the other two brothers look the exact same, the two that act a lot. Yeah. Which I always confuse John and I think, I don't even remember what the other guy's name is now. He's the one that, in God Bless America and he was on Mad Men for a long time. Oh, remember. yeah. That's, that's not the guy John? Who, that's not John. Oh, okay. Joel is the other one. The SS Minnow. But yeah. Uh, I enjoy this movie, but I didn't watch it when I was a kid. And so any of the jokes that I would have just had nostalgia for, I think I miss out on. Yeah, I didn't watch it uh, as a kid either. I I don't dislike this movie, but I don't have the same sort of love of this movie. Like it's one of, you know, a lot of people have it as like one of their favorite movies of all time. And I just don't have that sort of passion for it. Well, it's weird because I feel like Caddyshack, Stripes, and Ghostbusters get spoken about like in the same breath by a lot of people. Like these are three classic Bill Murray movies. Right. And I disagree that this is a Bill Murray vehicle of any right. kind. He's just kind of there. And that's fine. I, I don't, I, I think that, that, like you said in the, as far as the trivia, that he just was like, we need someone to replace this. Get Bill in here. He yeah. can, he can He's just around and goofy, he'll do goofy. it. But I, I feel like it was a little bit lazy to make him improv everything. Because he's an actor. Like, he's an improviser. That's great. And I'm, I'm, I know a lot of people think that what he did here was funny, obviously. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, 
not in the majority thinking that he wasn't hilarious in this movie but i feel like even if it's bill murray write something for him you know there should be you, you shouldn't just be like you, no you do it bill you're so good at that it's like yeah just write something like i can improve on something that's fine but i feel yeah. like they should have given him something to do yeah i agree with that but maybe they learn those lessons coming going down the road for things like ghostbusters to, yeah to kind of like fine-tune his performances because as much as people pretend like ghostbusters was 100 percent improvised you look at almost every draft of the script has some version of every joke that bill murray says mm. like undoubtedly he's improving on the material but you you can't pretend that he just made up that whole movie because nobody can do that yeah uh i i really enjoy this movie and uh it is definitely a movie that i you know as far as giving thumbs up and stuff like that I yes. definitely i definitely given it up yeah it gets enough for me too and i laughed a lot and like you know watching it with my dad and my niece who had not seen it um she she claimed to enjoy it um uh, she was most displeased with danny and maggie's relationship that Though, it gets that it gets left out well no that 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 he cheat danny cheats on her with no lacy well she cheats on him too though uh, or she claims to, in order to make him feel maybe less guilty. We yeah. d- we'll never really know if she does, but we know for sure that he does. I don't think um, in that moment she cares about making him feel guilty. I think she's no, 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 dealing to, with to, a life to, problem. Uh, to relief his guilt. Yeah, but to, that's to what I mean. Not, oh. I, I don't think she's just saying it to make him feel better. I think she's like, no, seriously, uh, it's maybe not yours, and that's not why I'm talking to you about this. Well, she was very displeased that that if that about because she's like just doesn't want she wants people who are in a relationship to be in a relationship in a a relationship uh but uh aside from that she said she really enjoyed the movie she thought it was really funny um watching it this time and then now going through this script i was like oh man this movie is all over the place yeah yeah and and that is my big problem with this movie is that we spend so much time with other people you lose focus on what the movie is supposed to be about and it just becomes a series of almost skits. I I still feel like the, the overriding story is, is Rodney Dangerfield versus Ted Knight. Like that's the most important through line because the stuff with, with Danny and Maggie is over in act two. Right. But I feel like Danny's is the only one who goes through the character change of him finally deciding, no, I'm going to give up this scholarship to do the right thing. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't part of the story point that the construction that's happening across the street, Rodney Dangerfield's construction? Yes. So I feel like that needed to be played up a whole bunch more, that he's the one that's causing the problems at the golf course, in addition to being obnoxious. Well, he also said that he was thinking about buying the golf course. Right, which is also very much a throwaway thing in this. It doesn't come into play. And you know that if he did buy the place, he wouldn't run it as a golf course. No, he said he was talking about yeah. it like it's it's the it's uh, golf courses and cemeteries are the worst <laughs> the, yeah. the worst use of real estate. They're just full of dead people. Yeah, I this definitely a thumbs up for me. Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. As much as I'm you know complaining about all these things about the movie, it's still funny. It's still better than most movies from 1980. I would not want to see the four-hour cut of this movie. No, 
I kind of would. I kind of want to recut it with all four hours of footage. No, the reason why I want to see the four hour cut is because I would like to see some of the scripted stuff that didn't make it. Mm. Well, so much of it is yeah. unscripted. Like, re- like I said, reading the script, the the fight with uh, Danny and Tony about the Coke, yeah. the 50 cents, that happens way late. That's like one of the first scenes we get in this movie. Yeah. The, the scene in the script, hap- it happens way, way later. Weird. Um, there's all there's a whole subplot about uh, Maggie being in the country illegally. Because she's an exchange student, right? Yeah, and, and that she needs to marry somebody. Which they never even explain why she has an Irish accent in the yeah. movie. I think that's fine, though. Yeah, I yeah think it doesn't too. bother me you, at all. You, you can have an it's Irish accent. Realistic, yeah. um, but yeah, there's like there was like I sometimes for movies like this, I like to read the script. Have yeah. it, instead of because I can't really make notes on a movie like Caddyshack because I've seen it too many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so any notes I've already got in my head. Uh, so for a movie like this, I like to have just the script so I can follow along with where we are in the story. Yeah, and I can remember the scenes. But in this case, you can't. I, I was <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I can't. I don't know where we are. I, I'm totally lost. Yeah. And and if the script can be switched around like that so much. I'm curious. What does it have a cervix line at the end? Uh, oh, the we're all going to get laid. You didn't say double or nothing, right? Um, it, again, I'm, I'm having like there's all kinds of other stuff that happens at the yeah. end. Uh, let's see. There's, we're waiting. That's such a great the Ted Knight's delivery on that. Well, we're waiting. <laughs> the, the the great gif of that. Yeah. Uh, no, it says double or nothing. He does in the script. Weird. Yeah. Maybe people just didn't understand the meaning of that phrase. I guess they just hear the double part and they're like, "Oh, they doubled it again." But the whole the whole time nobody said double or nothing, so it's clearly an, an a new story change. Mm-hmm. Interesting letterboxed where's this going richard uh for me i have this uh at number 15 okay which is just below little darlings and just above coal miner's daughter all right i have it um i have it a little higher i have it just below airplane which puts it at number nine for me and i I just feel like it belongs just below airplane it just feels right to me which is just above night of the juggler for me i actually have it at 15 um so it's uh, it's right above my brilliant career and just below where the Buffalo Rom, which for me is a better Bill Murray performance for the year. Well, I have where the Buffalo Rom much higher than yeah. that. So I'm surprised I that you have it so high up, Jesse. That's great. Well, I mean, my list, just so you understand, is the order in which I'd probably want to watch these movies again. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said um, in our last review... I am going to choose a comedy almost every time. Mm-hmm. As much as some of these movies are really great, you know, like I loved my brilliant career. I loved The Changeling. I'm still going to pick a comedy every time. Yeah. Uh, for me, I feel like my list is if you haven't seen any of these movies and you only have enough time to watch one, watch The Shining. Watch two, watch The Shining and Forbidden Zone. And then when I get down to Caddyshack, it's not because I think it's so much better of a movie than a lot of the stuff below it. It's because it is a Bill Murray Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, Harold Ramis movie. And for that reason alone, you should see it. Even if it was bad, Yeah, you should see it at that yeah. point. But if you're going to ask me what I'm going to put on you know, next week, I'm going to pick Caddyshack over my brilliant career, even though my brilliant career is probably a better movie. Sure. Yeah. 
I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we're Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We could also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Dress to Kill, which imdb describes like so a mysterious blonde woman kills one of a psychiatrist's patients and then goes after the high-class call girl who witnessed the murder we leave you now with the trailer for dress to kill do you find me attractive of course would you want to sleep with me yes then why don't you because i love my wife and it isn't worth jeopardizing my marriage I shouldn't have been so rude. Thank you for picking up. master of the macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. <coughs> dressed to Kill, Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, Dressed to Kill, Murder, Made to Order. <coughs>